0: yeah it, it is a fascinating kind of bringing them into light throughout this play. you see behavior from many of these characters that brings their yeah it, it, that, that's a fascinating way to think about it. you bring the objectifiers into light into light and see them on stage doing things that are often done behind a paywall.
1: Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back everybody to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen.
0: And I am Jackson Nikolai. We are excited to be coming at you with another play today
1: we are and it's not it's not just another play in another episode in another season this is a special episode one of those bitter sweet episodes that yeah. is the end of another season
0: yes indeed this is the finale episode of season 7 season 7 season <laughs> 7 if you can oh. believe it Season 7 of No Script. We are excited to be jumping into this one. We were going to have one other episode, but we decided if, if you were paying close attention a couple episodes, we mentioned <laughs> there was going to be another one, but we decided to kind of move that into a project for the future. So today is going to be the finale episode of the season. And and this is the episode that you're returning to us, Jacob, after a brief hiatus. That's true. It's been
1: sort of a choppy end of the season for me. I was in an episode, yeah. and then I was on a break for an episode. Now, this is the last episode. Yeah. But uh, a break is coming. Coming again that's especially good for you Jackson you didn't even have the last
0: week it's of true break, so <laughs> we
1: have got our usual between season breaks on the calendar here so after this episode we'll be off for some amount of time and we will return probably in the late winter sometime in early 2022 somewhere around there we will be back with season eight but between now and then we have a whole backlog of episodes that if you have not listened to you Should go check out. We have, you know, we're up into the more than 150 episodes that are conversations about scripts, scripts that define theater today, scripts that defined theater from yesterday. You can read. I'm sure that there is a play that you have heard of, a musical that you have seen. I'm sure there is one in our group of episodes. So please. Feel free to check out all of those episodes that are published in all of the places that we publish our episodes, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play.
0: Yeah, we're all over the place, plenty of different places for you to listen to us. And as you're kind of listening through the backlog, you might have some resonance with today's podcast because we're doing a playwright that we have done before on the show, a couple times on the show, actually.
1: Yes, that, that's right. We visited Susan Laurie Parks at the very beginning of this podcast way, way back when we did Top Dog, Underdog. That is one of my favorite plays, one of the plays that I think is, is one of the great plays in existence. I actually had the opportunity to return to Top Dog, Underdog for some school stuff that I had going on, so I re-listened to our conversation on Top Dog, Underdog. That's a spectacular play. Then a while back, we did... Uh, Father Comes Home from the Wars, which is one of Susan Lloyd Park's more recent works that has come out. And today, all of those years of evolution in the life of the podcast from way back in season one when there wasn't a pandemic going on and when Jackson and I were several years younger <laughs> to right now, we are, uh, we're coming back to... A really, really spectacular playwright, Susan Lloyd Parks, one of the more important American dramatists in the history of the country. And we are uh, actually discussing uh, a work of hers that is from before her in her career, either of the other two works that we've discussed.
0: Yeah, it's true. This play is back from the 1990s. We'll get into it in the context a little bit, but we are talking about Venus today by Susan Laurie Parks. I'm excited to get to jump into it. It's an amazing script. It's visceral, has lots of amazing themes. Susan Laurie Parks always plays with this like balance between deeply tragic and deeply full of love. And I'm just really excited to kind of get into get into this play and, it's, and the way it's kind of pushing the envelope in that way.
1: Yeah, she is a playwright who uses, like the nature of performance to be part of the stories that she tells. And you can really see that in Venus and then in Top Dog, Underdog. And it it just, you know, because I've just revisited Top Dog, Underdog, this is all swirling in my brain. And those two scripts come out not that far apart. And in both Venus and Top Dog, Underdog, you really see her experiment with what performance is. And that's one of the things that's just so inspiring to me about her as a playwright.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to get to start the conversation. Before we do, want to take a second and just thank all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash podcast for supporting the show. Thank you all so much. You you make this show possible. We are supported completely by our patrons over on patreon.com slash podcast. We love getting to do the show. We love getting to have these conversations, and they make it possible. If you're looking for a way to help out the show, whether you're just jumping on board at this first for the first time at this last episode of Season 7, or whether you've been on board for a long time and are looking for a way to kind of be a part of the NoScript community and help out the show, Patreon is the way that that really helps to do that. You'll find a number of different tiers over there. Lowest tier being just $1. That's $12 over the course of the year. We hope, we like to say we hope you're getting $12 over the course of a year of enjoyment out of the show. We certainly do. Um, and uh, so thank you to everyone who's headed over there. Thank you to everyone who's headed over there and become uh, a $5 a per month patron at the playwright level is what we call that. That's the level where we give producers her credit for the show, and we're going to start kind of a new tradition of naming them in the final episode of the season, because some of these folks got named like four years, four ass nut years, four seasons right,
1: yeah, ago. It's, <laughs> it's a great point, and, and Jackson brought it up as we were sort of planning for this, that we have folks in that level that have been supporting us at that level for years now, and we we said their name, as is the sort of tier level reward that we had given out way back when, and then their continued support fell like it was going unmentioned to us. And so we wanted to begin that new tradition at the end of every season of revisiting those folks that are at the playwright level and extending our personal thanks to them again. And so we are going to start doing that now. We want to say a big thank you to Joanna Lawler and Roger Hartley.
0: We want to say thank you to Abby McCubbin and Albert Dayan.
1: We want to say thank you to Brennan Saar and Craig Elliott
0: Frew. David
1: Lindsay-Abert, Kyle Tenholzen,
0: Patricia Ralph, and my mom, Michelle Miller.
1: Thank you to all of you folks who support us over on Patreon. Not just the folks at that level, but to the whole group of people who contribute their hard-earned money to help this podcast continue. Uh, we, we're, we're really grateful. We love to do the podcast, and you all make it possible
0: means a whole lot. If you're looking for a way to be a part of making sure NoScript, the podcast continues to put out unscripted conversations about the year's best scripts, head over to patreon.com slash no podcast, and we will see you over there.
1: And now, for the last time this season. Back to the script. Here we go. Okay. So, as Jackson said, we have visited Susan Laurie Parks twice before. So, we're not going to do the full playwright explanation. Although, frankly, every time Susan Laurie Parks is discussed, her brilliant career deserves to be highlighted. All I'm going to say is this. We've said it in the other episodes, but it's just, it's, it's so important to remember that Susan Laurie Parks is the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. That's an incredible achievement for her personally, and frankly, it is a—it's uh, a, a criticism of American theater, honestly, that it took that long for that award to be given to an African American woman. And so, while Susan Lori Parks represents the top tier of dramatists, you also see in her work a notation of the racism that she faces as a member of the American theater. And that award, while an honor, is also part of that legacy of racism in the American theater. Her play, Venus, this is the play we're discussing today, of course. This was commissioned by the Women's Project and Productions, Inc. It opened in 1996, so that's six years before Top Dog Underdog goes on to win the Pulitzer Prize. Um, it opened in 96, and that production was produced by a guy named George C. Wolfe. George C. Wolfe and Susan Laurie Parks, their careers have been hugely intertwined. George C. Wolfe was a playwright and a director. As a playwright, he, he wrote one of the great kind of plays That's part of the canon of African American dramatic literature. It's called the colored museum. If you've not read it, he wrote that play. It's, it it goes into all the anthologies and such. Um, and he really worked to get a lot of Susan Lloyd Park's work up on its feet. Um, this play opened at the Yale Rep. Again, that's 1996. Interestingly, Rain Wilson was in that production as a member of the chorus. Just a fun fact. And then it's uh, it has been revitalized, this play Venus. Although Susan Laurie Park's career has gone on to include uh, a few much more famous plays, like Top Dog, Underdog, and Father Comes Home from the War, this play came back to the American stage in 2017, had an off-Broadway revival at the Signature Theater. This is not something that happens very often in theater for some odd reason, but you can actually go and look at some really incredible production photos housed on the Signature Theater website of this production. And this production requires some imagination to, as you read it, to sort of (laughs) To, to it's it's there's just it's so visual and so physical that it really requires you to use your imagination. So seeing those production photos uh, is really cool. I encourage you to go check those out. Uh, Venus won the 1996 Obie Award for playwriting. It's a play that's loosely based on the life of Saki Bartman, a, uh, a South African. A woman who went to England on the promise of sort of making her fortune and then what happened to her there. Jackson will cover the synopsis of the play. Uh, 1962, four year or uh, uh, 30, 32, 34 years, my goodness, that math on the fly. 34 <laughs> years before this play comes out, uh, a another... Author and a member of the American sort of literary community, Elizabeth Alexander, wrote her poem, also loosely based on the life of this person, and that poem kind it echoes a lot of the same things. It sets up a lot of the themes that Susan Lori Parks is going to explore in her adaptation of
0: this woman's life in in Venus. All right. So with that kind of context in mind and this kind of, you know, real life story that's used as the kind of, uh, the the basis for the play that we're about to read. We're going to jump into the synopsis first. We're going to do just a little bit of a heads up as we as we typically do when we are engaging in a play that is written uh, from from a specific community. We want to just say that we're two white guys, two white guys who are you know theater nerds who are talking about the show. Um, we are cannot claim to be experts. We cannot claim to bear a lot of the same perspectives that the that this play is speaking into, and yet it's important. Uh, at least at least we believe it's important, especially for this show to continue to talk about these plays because they are they are such a vital part of what theater is but for to American theater but to the greater theater community at large as well and the stories that they tell are really essential part of the narrative that needs to continue to be told so we're going to be kind of dealing with a play that that goes into a lot of oppression that is written about a time in the 1810s so it's going to be using some dated terms in there and we just wanted to give you a heads up that we're approaching this from our own cultural perspective as two white guys.
1: This is also the kind of play that if you are uncomfortable with discussions of sex and nudity and even some sexual abuse and and that sort of realm of content, you are probably going to want to skip this episode. At the very least, you're probably going to want to put in earphones if you're at work. Maybe don't play this episode around little ones. This play deals with some really hard things. And like Jackson said, it's an incredible piece of art and an incredible contribution to the American theater and theater at large so it's it's a great play really important and jackson and i are really excited to discuss it but we wanted to just say those two things at the top right we're two white guys this play is not really for us or by us right (laughs) and also that uh you may just want to be careful about the content of this episode based on your circumstances
0: with that said, we're going to jump into the synopsis of the play. I'm going to read you just a short uh, part of the uh, summary at the back of the play. Um, uh, it says, Venus is based on the historically true tale of a black woman whose horror and fascination derived from a large, probably not all that large, posterior. There you go. There's the start of that's that's where we're jumping into right now. This play is about a woman named Saki Bartman, as uh, Jacob said at the beginning, um, who was uh, basically so, sort of uh, tricked into joining a freak show as a result of her rather large behind um and and she was in this freak show for a while uh, a number of years in the 1810s that the play follows her journey um as she is kind of talked into it by, back in South Africa by uh by a, a, a fairly powerful person and and an idea guy the idea guy is like I'm going to bring I want to bring someone to England where they're going to be just amazed at at uh this this these, this woman who I'm going to bring from South Africa and and she's kind of there and they ask her to do it, or kind of tell her to do it.
1: I think he calls the act as he's pitching it like the dancing African princess, and right. you can sort of see on the front end the the racism, the colonialization that's really present and, and part of why this sort of thing happened and and the environment that was there.
0: Yeah. So so she is kind of brought to England, and right away in the in the play, the play is a a, a really. Uh, uh, visceral sort of, uh, uh, magical at sometimes sometimes this kind of weird stuff happens around and she's greeted by this chorus of people the chorus of human wonders right as she gets off the boat and she thinks she's going to be there to like you know perform on streets of gold and rake in a bunch of money and go home in two years and the chorus of eight human wonders kind of says you're going to be stuck here for a while like how do we tell you that you've been kind of roped into this thing that you don't fully understand what's going to happen to you um eventually she is kind of abandoned by this person the the, the guy name is uh, the man um, and uh, or the, the character name is the man and uh, he abandons her there to uh, the mother showman and the mother showman runs this kind of carnival of eight human wonders. It's a freak show um, in in the kind of vernacular of that time where she has a bunch of different people and and charges admission to come and like gawk at them. And so uh, Sarki Bartman becomes the Venus Hottentot. And, uh, she is kind of shown in these, uh, kind of carnival shows. People are are allowed to come in and like look at her and touch her. Um, she performs in, in mostly the nude, um, throughout, throughout all those different kind of carnival shows and just kind of over and over you get, you get a, a bunch of years of her life are in this kind of carnival show where she's traveling from place to place throughout England and France primarily, um, with, uh, the mother showman. Now that's during, during this whole time that the carnival is, is a spectacle in this play. There's a, kind of musical numbers that are happening. There's a lot of kind of rhythmic repetition, um, in, in the dialogue and, and in the action that's progressing. Eventually, um, she, uh, meets the character of the Baron Docteur and the Baron Docteur is a fan of hers. He comes to the show and he's fascinated by her, infatuated by her and offers to buy her, from the mother showman who eventually agrees to do so. And, uh, and he takes her to Paris and starts to, uh, he he espouses some love for her, um, whether or not you believe him is, as we'll get into some of that action, some of that conversation eventually, but he certainly seems to care for her in some way. However, he also submits her to pretty invasive academic study. Um, uh, there's this, uh, this kind of awful, Uh, uh, studying that happens at the university where he invites a bunch of doctors to come and study how large her posterior is and how um, and kind of gawk at her differences to their more European what they think is the European norm again very very kind of racist time in European science
1: Yes, I mean, it, it, there's this whole period called scientific racism or biological racism where the scientific community sort of came up with science science-ish sounding justifications for racism. And in this play, Susan Lloyd-Parks is really really shows off how well she can kind of construct and structure things because these scenes where the scientists examine her and measure her are really deliberately echoes of these scenes in which these crowds of people who are objectifying the the Venus character as she performs in this freak show are scrutinizing and objectifying her. And you see the echoes of that in the way that the this, this scenes with the anatomists, the, the scientists who study anatomy, are written.
0: Yeah, so so as as that's kind of brought into light in what is kind of the second act if you think there's not really acts in this play but there's there's there is an intermission but kind of the first section is coming to England performing in this carnival. the second section is kind of meeting the the uh, doctor and and moving to Paris and being a part of these examinations with the uh, the chorus kind of turns into the chorus of the eight anatomists. So there's that kind of arc and then there's the arc, the kind of tragic ending arc of the play where the doctor is kind of convinced the baron doctor is convinced to abandon her essentially probably maybe even like to the level abandon her to the point that it kills her somewhat intentionally um he he is convinced that his his studies that he's doing on her are being done by another doctor out there as well and that that doctor is going to uh kind of reveal his information before uh, the baron doctor does and the baron doctor wants to become famous as a result of having studied the Venus Hottentot. And so he gets her thrown into jail and, and, and with the hope that she will die soon. And she does in fact die soon in, in prison. And, uh, he, the poem and this that Jacob mentioned and the history and this play deal pretty viscerally again, with the fact that the doctor then kind of bisects her up and preserves much of her in this kind of, uh, Pickling is what they call it, um, but that's not the actual term. But
1: yeah, <laughs> Ugh, I yeah
0: but it's—I mean—it's historical fact. She's displayed in museum, um, and and he releases this long study about her. Now, that's the kind of dry uh, plot of the play. Through it all is woven this chorus of characters that continually switches. Sometimes they're the eight human wonders. Sometimes they're the eight anatomists. There's more roles for them throughout that they kind of fluidly jump through. And then there's also a, a play within the play that at least bears mentioning here. Um, it's uh, the the play of For the Love of the Venus, um, which is
1: which, as a as a just a brief throwback to the context section that play within the play that is watched that Jackson's about to describe that in itself is an adaption of a French vaudeville show which has different titles sometimes called the Hatred of French Women which came out around 1814 um, so during the period in which this thing with Venus would have been happening as the play tells it and so it. Parks is adapting a lot of different things, and as we'll talk about, that's really representative of her postmodern writing style, this heavy, heavy intertextuality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this, this play kind of serves as sort of commentary on what's happening or another lens through which to view what is happening. It's a pretty, uh, you know, romantic, uh, kind of, uh, lots of characters sort of fainting away in love of each other or lack of love of each other sort of play where in a bride to be and a young man are kind of falling out of love and she's trying to fix it. It it becomes clear that the young man has become infatuated with the, this, this, this character who's very much like Venus. Um, the, 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 the the uh, descriptors are flipped, so the hot and taut Venus in the play, um, and he gets his uncle to. He says he'll marry the bride to be, but first he has to fall in love with, or he wants to uh, make love with uh, the hot and taut Venus. He gets his uncle to bring him to him. However, through a conveniently oriented sequences of events, the mother gets the uncle to bring uh, the bride to be dressed up as the hot and taut Venus. There's so another in
1: blackface.
0: Yep, there's another another ding on the racism mark um, for this 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 time frame, um, and. And uh, she shows up. He's he he thinks that he falls in love with the hottentot Venus, but in fact he is falling in love with the bride to be. So that's that's kind of like popcorns through the play, like six ish scenes of of that kind of small play and little vignettes that we're kind of watching. Different characters, like the doctor, the Baron Doctor, especially loves this play. Every time the the vignette ends, he's brought into rapturous applause. So so uh, that that play until he's floats. no
1: longer watching it because he's living it. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so that that sort of floats through the play around the kind of bigger plot of, of Venus kind of making it through these three big portions of her life, going to England, joining the carnival, being forced into the carna- carnival, kind of living with the doctor in Paris and then eventually uh, going to prison and uh, dying there uh, so very tragically at the end of the play.
1: Yeah, wow. It, there, there's so much that happens in this play. We, we almost always say this at the end of the podcast discussion, but it's probably <laughs> worth saying this at the beginning. I mean, we are not even going to get kind of close it's to true. covering the even the barest scope of what Susan Lori Parks is doing in this play. There, There's so much happening. It's, it's honestly, even reading it, it's kind of an overwhelming experience. And I imagine, and you can see from the production photos of the Signature Theater production, that, that that's kind of part of the live experience, too. There is this sort of blasting of spectacle and sound and image and writing and, and art that that there's just, there's so many layers going on at one time. There's, Susan Laurie Parks is always setting something up that's going to come. She's always echoing something that she did before. She's always pulling from one source or another and totally reworking them into a new context.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing how many different things are pulled into it and yet they all kind of uh, you, you you interact with them out of order sometimes the first scene of the play the overture I think of the play um is uh is is a scene where there that gets repeated at the very end of the play you get a lot of kind of information in this this very early scene that sums up a lot of things sums up that the the Venus died um and people theorizing why she died um and and so you have these kind of like seeds planted throughout the early portions of the play that grow into really powerful images really powerful characters character moments as as it progresses but you kind of have to wait and be in it for the payoff for it.
1: Yeah, and and actually that that t- writing technique or style or tool is something that Susan Laurie Parks has famously articulated in her uh, handbook, The Elements of Style. She defines this, and it's it's not like she invented it. I mean, you can go back and see Shakespeare do it and the Greeks do it, but but she really articulates in a way that that has kind of developed the language. She calls it rep and rev is the shorthand for it. It means repetition and revision. And Susan Laurie Parks says, this is a way to structure your stories, to structure scenes and moments to build audience awareness and understanding and, and engagement, which is that you repeat actions, images, character moments, lines, whatever. And each time you repeat them, there is a revision to what is going on. And I mean, you can see that, of course, in a play like Top Dog Underdog. For those of you who remember or know the play, right? They play cards three or four times in that play. And each time the stakes are different. They do a mock killing of the uh, of Lincoln in that play three or four times, each time is different Till finally they do kill him. This, this is how Susan Laurie Parks thinks. I I, I read an interesting uh, I forget who it was, but some scholar was discussing that th- one of the reasons Susan Laurie Parks won the Pulitzer for Top Dog Underdog was that everybody had known all along that she deserved something like that, but that in Top Dog Underdog she just kind of wrote even a little more simple of the story as compared to something like Venus that sort of distilled it mm-hmm. down so that Everybody could grasp what was going on, but that all of the stuff that makes Top Dog Underdog G- genius, incredible, is present in, a pl- in one of her earlier works, like Venus. It's just—it's just there in multiplicity.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it really does. It it shows up just all over the place in this in the script. One of the like. Big ones is the intermission is kind of an odd intermission. Scott, it's, it's 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 it is a break. You are like encouraged by one of the characters to get up and go out. It's the Baron Doctor who is doing it, but he's giving a pretty uh, academic presentation um, of Venus's measurements um, that that he's taken, presumably after we're jumping time. Get, time gets a little wibbly wobbly, but he's prese- presenting his, his information. And all throughout this presentation, you have a repeated line from the Bride to Be in the play within the play. Um, My love for you, my love is artificial, fabricated much like this epistle, constructed with man's finest powers will last through the days and the years and the hours." And that's a just a uh, a fascinating uh, uh, lens through which we are viewing. We, we, we've just met the Baron Doctor. Uh, we're gonna like kind of go through the steps of wondering whether or not he and Venus are actually in love um, with each other. And this how line, much, kind how of, much wondering it, do you really do? Not that much wondering. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of dramatic tension around whether or not he's going to not throw her into prison right, so that she like, dies faster. Does he
1: care enough not to kill her at the end? Is really the right. only tension. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. 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 But, but um, yes, yeah, so that, that snippet of, of, the, of a love letter is how they describe it. Although, you know, you dissect the line and there's not a lot of love in it, right? My love for yeah. you is artificial, like this epistle or, or however it goes. And that's uh-huh. a great example of rep and rev, right? Because it first appears in the very first play within the play that we watch. The doctor is the only audience member. He's watching this play, and that appears as a line in the play, right? The bride-to-be is worried that her her fiancé is not in love with her like he once was. She says, look at this love poetry he used to write me. She reads it, and of course, as the audience, there's irony, because she seems to think that that's really a love letter, and for some reason, as the audience, we understand what she seems not to, which is that that's not a very lovey line for him to write in a love right. letter. But <laughs> then it's repeated, right, rep and rep, and revised as it goes along. And the, each time it appears in a new context. The doctor says that to Venus when they're finally together, and now they're sleeping together, and he says, well, I just made up this love poem for you. Right. And, and you know, it's a it's the same line, but it's in a totally new context, and it totally reorients the audience to what's going on
0: and then it shows up again in this in this sort of uh intermission uh, business <laughs> um, and and provides the lens through which to be viewing the Baron doctor's actions which we've as we've mentioned are are, are, are dubious at best
1: yeah yeah dubious at best I think yes is... <laughs> and, and it, it is that I mean so much of this play is that question about love for i mean like dubious at best right is that what love is or is that how this person this venus person experiences love from the people around her because their love is not without strings attached right i mean there there's sort of two kinds of love that she experiences. There's this sort of objectifying love, right? People say that they love her because they're sexually aroused by her. Because they can pinch her body and they can see her basically in the nude. She actually performs in like a very skimpy pair of underwear and that's sort of part of it is that nobody sees her totally naked until she's fully dissected except the doctor but only when the lights are off. I I, I don't think that's a hugely important facet but it is worth noting. But, But she performs basically naked and all of these, these uh, this these crazy crowd and these chorus, they love her but they love her because they can sexually objectify her and not even sexually but monetarily objectify her. So there's this kind of, there's that kind of love she experiences and then she also experiences love which is a tool for other people's advancement, right? The brother character that brings her to England, well he only really is doing that for the money. The mother showman routinely says how much she loves her In fact, when when the doctor finally buys Venus, the mother showman says she was her favorite daughter. Is how she describes. It. I mean, she loves her, but only insofar as Venus makes her money. It's a tool for advancement. And then as you head into the second half of the play, again, that just genius level writing from Susan Laurie Parks, you put Venus into a situation where she's experiencing a character who has both, right? The doctor is both of those things. He loves her because he physically, sexually objectifies her, and because she is a tool to advance his career.
0: Yeah yeah this this play balances just so well the the profound wounds that Venus goes through and the profound profound longing for love and yearning to experience love that she goes through. And I think that's that's kind of the, the challenge of entering this piece is like it's, it's a play full of some pretty vile things, right? Or, or there's, 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 there's plenty in here to make one uncomfortable viewing. There's plenty to co- comment on and critique. And there's lots of ways that this play calls into light um, things and actions and, and names them for what they are as oppressive systems, as abuse, etc., And, and yet there's more to the, there, there is this whole other layer here too. And Susan Laurie Parks talks about this a little bit in some of the, the materials from that most recent production of, of this play that was done in 2017. Um, She says that there is a core of love in here. And I think that's, that's the mission of the production team and also kind of the mission of the audience to find where that love is in the midst of this pretty, pretty weighty story.
1: Yeah, I believe you're talking about there's this this video where a director of the piece describes how, uh, I think, uh, really articulately that that so much of the play is an invitation to complexity, is her words, and uh, and an invitation to explore the wounds of history. And Susan Laurie Parks, who's in the room, sort of steps forward and says yes to all of that, but beyond the wounds there is love, and our job is to find that and resurrect it."
0: Hmm, yeah, resurrecting it is an interesting phrase, especially with the the theme of resurrection in this play. Um, there's there's a there's a, a, a kind of a late character who comes about. He is named early. Um, all the characters are named early in that overture. Everyone's kind of introduced pretty early on. And His, then, in
1: classic rep and rev technique, they all introduce themselves, and then they all do it again, but they introduce each other, Repetition right? And totally revise the introductions. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's really cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. it certainly lands some, some kind of familiarity with these characters who's, who you don't often meet the title that they're introduced as for a while. And that's certainly the case for this character. This, this character is named the Negro Resurrectionist. Um, and uh, he shows up quite late in the play in his title role. He plays other characters throughout. He shows up to speak things throughout. However, he's uh, this this character in the very end of the play who meets Venus when she is in prison. He's kind of her guard, um, and uh, he's he's uh, propositioned by this this character who I didn't really uh, introduce. He's the best. He's, he's introduced as kind of the schoolhood friend of the Baron Doctor. He's the one who kind of sows the doubt in people's minds um, of 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 kind of betraying Venus. He's the one who kind of shows up and says, your colleagues are all making fun of you, Baron doctor. And also this other doctor is going to publish his research before you move it along. He also shows up to the uh, Negro resurrectionist um, and uh, says, we want to pay you to be sure that, that uh, she comes to us when she dies. And this is, and this character uh, spends the last couple days of, of Venus's life with her. Um, he, he's this character who, uh, he's, his, the, the, he's, he's had this past of digging people up from the ground after they have died and, and is that, now, that's where the name
1: comes from is the resurrectionist. Cause he describes basically uh, grave robbing, right? He takes yeah. the corpses that he can dig up to doctors for dissection and examination and such. Uh, but he says, I'm resurrecting them. I think he even says like resurrection is illegal.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's an, inch, an an interesting theme and interesting that he is the one that kind of spends the last days with Venus. Um, he's, he's kind of been this advocate character throughout, unnamed. He shows up in a sort of an advocate way in a lot of the scenes. Uh, he ends up kind of voicing, uh, at least when I read it, with some derision, a lot of the notes of the doctor, the Baron doctor, he steals his journal frequently and kind of reads out these very clinical, um, uh, analysis notes, um, that uh, in the midst of the doctor trying to pretend that he uh, loves Venus. Um, and so so yeah, he's he's just a character throughout and it's just interesting that he is the one that spends the last days with her.
1: Yeah, and and he he does this throughout the play. He he reads us a lot of historical documents, not just the um, analytical scientific notes from the dissection of the body that the doctor does. Although he does read those in great detail throughout, but also other historical records which speak to the historical person. Uh, that that lived this life on whom the play is really loosely based. And there is a repeating refrain. Of course there is. It's Susan Laurie Parks. There's this repeating refrain throughout the play. He will say at various moments of great impact, he will say, The year was 1810, three years after the bill for abolition of slave trade had been passed in Parliament, and among the protests and denials, the horror and fascination, the Venus show went on.
0: Yeah, yeah, he really like kind of shows the juxtaposition of of what England was doing at the time, which you know, in in paper at least, it was uh, abolishing the slave trade, and yet this practice continued in the midst of it, and even when that 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 sort of declaration was in its heyday, um, most most in the minds of people, this was this story is a part of of that nation still,
1: and it it, it connects. Right, I think you're right. It connects the oppression, the uh the abuse, the the way that a person like Venus was financially and socially and physically sort of captured into doing this thing, living this this life, it connects it with the slave trade, right? And and with that legacy in the world today. And and other things connect that too. Another rep and rev instance that you see in the play is when the person who is Venus at the very beginning of the play, she's working in sort of menial cleaning jobs in South Africa, and the person who's going to take her to England finds her and says, hey, you should come to England with me. I'm going to sell you as a great exotic dancer. You're going to make millions. It's going to be awesome. And her question is, do I have a choice? And that comes up again when the doctor comes to her after she's been in this freak show and he has purchased her from the mother showman. And he says, come to France with me. You're going you're gonna to live in these you know, crazy social circles. I'm going to introduce you to wealth and you're going to be studied by scientists, not these crazy rabbles on the streets. You're not going to be a freak anymore. You're going to be this object of admiration and art and, and knowledge and all of this. And the question comes again, do I have a choice?
0: Yeah, and and the answer in that ca- that time is yes. He says yes, you do, and kind of walks away and lets her make the choice. It winds up being at least a fairly easy choice for Venus, who is then kind of <laughs> shown yeah. mo- or Mother Showman shows up as like, well, we got another drunken mob coming. You want to get ready for the show? And so she says, yes, I'm gonna go with you, Baron Doctor.
1: Yeah, at least it'll be a little better than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, that that that, that theme of choice uh, kind of repeating and continuing to I I, I love the rep and rev. So so you keep interacting with these themes and they're they're revised again for you and you 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 examine examine them in different light and see how her journey and her progression through this this really hard thing that she's been kind of forced into changes her desire for choice her desire for love her desire for success and 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 maybe returning home someday with that success
1: yeah Susan Laurie Parks is widely known as this sort of bastion of postmodern. Playwriting, and and one of those things that is kind of a classic hallmark of postmodern writing is the revisiting, retooling, recomprehending what we know about history. Revisiting these these things that occurred in history with the the ability to understand them from new points of view, right? From previously unheard points of view, from uh, the ability to look back on them. and see them in sort of a more clarity a better light. And and this play is a really solid example of that, right? Because it's a, it's a story from the early 1800s and and Susan Laurie Parks looks back on it and is able to make some commentary about the the humans, about power structure, about desire, about oppression, uh about gender. I mean, so much of the play is about is about genders, about patriarchy.
0: Yeah, yeah, and she does it with these this she doesn't with these 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 uh I keep using the word visceral and I just I guess that's just what, I, what like the biggest experience I have from them is these visceral chorus scenes where uh the Venus is surrounded by these people just invading her space invading invading uh uh you know her privacy in a lot of ways the chorus just continues it's it's a it's a, a magnificent chorus in this play where that just uh continues to swirl around her first as these eight human wonders then as uh you know the various people who are visiting her and then as these anatomists who are taking her measurements in all sort and of very there's personal a chorus ways of
1: chorus uh, of law people too i think yeah. it's called the chorus of the court
0: mm-hmm yep yep and and that 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 chorus and, and the, the characters that it plays kind of adds in that, um, sort of invasiveness, that sort of, uh, greater systemic issues around her that continue to kind of push against her and her hopes to, to kind of, uh, make, make enough money to, to, to go home someday or to just, just be taken care of, um, for, for some amount of time and have a better life than the one she's living
1: and the the chorus represent I mean, who Susan Laurie Parks has chosen as sort of like societal stations in life to be the chorus sort of represents some of that kind of postmodern lens too, right? because the the chorus is the law. the court, the chorus is scientists and and. Post, postmodern writers, you can always see this through line of them being skeptical of any kind of intellectual or social authority, right? I mean, postmodernism is a reaction to modernism, which comes about in terms of the Enlightenment when we say, you know, humanity said, look, we have these authorities now, science and truth and morality, and postmodern comes along and says, well, I'm going to be skeptical of all those kinds of authorities. And that is huge in a play like this. One of, to me, the I don't know, it's a scene that every time I encountered the play stuck out to me was, so in the very middle of the play, Venus is basically arrested, Um, although there's this, like, underlying sense of, like, the court wanting to also protect her from the situation that she's in. So there's this sort of odd tension there. Is she in trouble or does she need to be protected? What exactly is going on? Anyway, she's on trial for this freak show thing that she's been doing. Um, And at the end of it, they determine that she can in fact go on doing it, that she's not in any trouble, that nobody is abusing her or oppressing her, and she can just continue on to do it. And at the the very end of that scene, the chorus of the court says something to the effect of, but we also want to note how amazing it is that somebody from this person's societal, economic, racial, ethnic world could have fair representation in court, could have their case heard
0: before right. the court.
1: And then this big rest. Susan Laurie Parks loves to use the word rest. And then they all burst out laughing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The, the 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 laughter is a huge uh, a repetition in this play as well. Yeah, that that scene just kind of shows them trying to pat themselves on the back um quite a bit, and then this laughter breaks out. There's a bunch of scenes where that laughter this is kind of uh. Unexpectedly uh, produced. <laughs> Sometimes Venus laughs out loud, kind of uncomfortably. Um, often, quite uncomfortably, when things happen. Other times, the chorus embodies this this derisive laughter or this ironic laughter that that just kind of continues as this theme to kind of add commentary, add perspective to some of these systems that are being critiqued in the in the very postmodernist approach of again, like the, the societies, the spectators courts and science all these things are brought into the lens of 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 critique and 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 wondered whether they actually brought about anything that they were they were not anything uh, maybe anything um but <laughs> brought about any sort of the good that they were claiming that they were bringing about
1: yeah the the skepticism that these claims to objective rightness or objective authority or objective truth is is really characteristic of who Soar's and Laurie Parks is as an author and in this early work that is really kind of uh, cannonballed into this script is is virtually nobody comes out of this thing unscathed including the Venus herself lots of the reviewers and scholars who've looked at this play and it's what is it, coming up on almost 30 years or wow, you know, yeah. 25 mm-hmm. years, something like that? You know, it, it, in, in all of that time, there's been a lot of back and forth on, well, how feminist is this play? Does this play just re-objectify the person of Venus who's endured all this objectifying in her real life? And other people will say, well, actually, Susan Laurie Parks is objectifying the objectifiers,
0: yeah. Hmm, yeah. 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 It is a fascinating kind of bringing them into light throughout this play. You see behavior from many of these characters that brings their yeah. That that's a fascinating way to think about it. You bring the objectifiers into light into light and see them on stage doing things that are often done behind a paywall or in a hotel room or in an apartment room. All these things are kind of on stage in front of everyone or in 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 academia as well. The the doctor has these lines where he says, "Don't worry, everyone's doctors here." And then they they continue to invade her privacy. So you have all these things that happen behind closed doors being brought onto stage, brought into life and and evaluated in front of the audience.
1: And the the character of The Venus, she has a part to play in this too, right? I think... Way back when I started this ramble, I said nobody escaped unscathed, including the Venus, because at several moments in the play, she sort of chooses to continue doing what she's doing. She states a pursuit of fame and fortune, and and scholars have talked about that over the years, that, in fact, some scholars say, well, that's part of what makes this play so feminist, right, is that this is a person who who has agency in what is going on, who lives in a world in which uh, she's going to be physically and sexually Objectified, but how, but at simultaneously, Susan Lori Parks has written a character with some agency
0: hmm yeah 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 it's in- interesting certainly the the early parts of the play she kind of makes has has some power over the choices even as she's uh kind of pulled into the different things um it's interesting then to the, kind of have her blindsided at the end of it I think that's probably where the 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 resistance to it being a feminist play might come in is this like oh, but she's eventually blindsided at the end of it um so so she has she has she, she she can't fight or or maybe that that makes it that might make it an even more honest feminist play honestly despite all of her choices and all of her striving this system around her is still perpetuating this sort of abuse this sort of abandonment of her that leads to her event her eventual death far apart from the dream that she had hoped to make for herself
1: Right. I mean, she she's a person who really from beginning to end of the play is looking for a kind of honest human connection, a kind of respect to sort of uh, as equals. She, when she's in the middle of the relationship with the Doctor, she sort of has this fantasy of of being able to be, uh, to have the status of his like legitimate life partner. And the Doctor is, of course, married and is having this, this extended terrible affair with Venus. And she she imagines a world in which she is the person in his life that holds the status of his wife that has that wealth and power that comes along with it and that's just not something that is afforded to her throughout the course of the play. We, we're running close to the end of our time Jackson and I I, I want to talk about something that I, I'm not sure I have any good insight into other than it's just worth noting how interesting it is which is the way that the play is structured in the numbering of scenes. And this is this might sound a little like uh, ivory tower because and sometimes we do talk about stuff that's like well you'd only notice <laughs> this if you read the play but yep. and that could be true of this because we're about to talk about how the scenes are numbered but that is not true actually because the scene numbers are part of the play. The Negro resurrectionist character as Susan Laurie Parks titles him uh, is, also functions as a kind of narrator guide through the piece and he gives us the scene numbers and the titles of the scenes. There are uh, 31 plus uh, the like beginning and end scene. Um, But here's what's interesting about them. The play begins with the overture and then the next scene is scene 31. The next scene is scene 30 and then 29 and then 28 and then 27 and it counts down rather than up. And counting appears a number of times throughout the play. But it's interesting that then that has become part of the scene breakdowns too.
0: Yeah, it is fascinating. It's almost this like, a little bit of a Brechtian aspect of these scenes being placarded up, except they're being announced up by, by this character and and yeah it's it's back you know you're counting down throughout the scenes there's 31 for some reason interesting number other scenes where counting is happening it's it's counting up because they're counting money often um so they're kind of counting up by by the fraction of 10 to to form uh, an amount of money um, I believe they count up to 31 though in all of those scenes so there's that repetition of 31 again and kind of wondering what the, what that sort of significance means um I think it's I think it's a fascinating certainly like like the, the conversation that it derives is really fascinating. Certainly if someone catches it in the in the in the play, it's really interesting. I wonder what it means. I have I have kind of an off-the-wall theory um that isn't isn't really backed up in the play, but it's sort well, of I, backed up.
1: I, I want to hear your <laughs> off-the-wall theory, but I also want to discount one explanation, especially for those who maybe haven't read the play or seen it. The play does not happen backwards. Right. This is not uh, a world in which we see the end of the play and then uh, scene 31 and we sort of work towards the beginning. I'm I'm sure a piece of drama exists which uses that, and that's awesome. But that is not what's happening in this play. We do experience Venus' life roughly chronologically. Again, we have the overture at the beginning, which is placed out of time because we know that she's dead at that point. But other than that, it's roughly chronological. It's just that the scenes are numbered descendingly.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was my initial like attempt at trying to understand what was happening. I was like, oh, are we watching time in reverse? Are we kind of backing up? Is there some sort of theme that I'm supposed to be reverse engineering from this? Um, and and I don't know that I agree that it's not the case in terms of chronology, and I don't know that necessarily you're trying to reverse engineer something. I wondered about maybe it was something to do with her age. We we get a little bit of a mention that she has turned 30 in one of the notes of the Baron Doctor. Um, and and he's kind of noting that his that she is losing some appeal in his eyes in this note. And so I was kind of wondering if maybe, you know, if she dies at 31, I haven't done the historical research to know exactly how old she was when she died, but I wonder if that's, uh, that's part of the 31, if it's in fact, uh, some, some nod to how long she lived. Um, so, so that, that's an interesting facet of it. Um, the, certainly the the, the one thing that you do get with it counting down is you have an, have an awareness as an audience, if you're paying attention, you have an awareness as an audience that we're going to reach zero at some point. That that you kind of have a, a a structural knowledge of how the play is progressing. So perhaps if if you know, especially in a play as visceral as, oftentimes uncomfortable as this play is going on, perhaps that serves as a guideline for you, um, uh, as as you're kind of gauging how much you can take of this play. Um, other t- or other times it could just be you know as 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 a as a resource to you as you're engaging in the structure of a narrative. You know that there is a a, a timer on this on this uh, narrative that you're watching and on this character. So your your kind of edge of your seat continues to get a little bit, you, you get a little bit more on the edge of your seat as you go and kind of expect more and more uh, uh, endings for the story as you progress through the numbering of the scenes.
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting. I, I agree that there seems to be, there's the the... The, the counting down does function to tell us that something is coming that we are headed towards something. There, we're not just going to count up to infinity. There is a zero actually a one. I don't think we ever get zero but we're there, there, we, we going to reach an end of this story which we know from the very beginning of the play. right? The, the overture which is an unnumbered scene is her death and we know that we're counting down towards something and so it may serve as a way to always keep that that end path in mind. On the other hand, it may be uh, Susan Laurie Parks pushing against kind of narrative chronological storytelling that's very postmodern of her. The idea that you know, we only by lo- sort of looking back, going backwards, uh, re-understanding this in a totally different way than it would have been experienced can we truly see the legacy of, of uh, not specifically this story, because although it's loosely based on this woman's life, it a lot of it is made up, as Susan Laurie Parks Will admit, But the legacy of those ideas, the, the scientific racism, uh, objectification, uh, uh, all of the stuff that she explores in the script, there may be some sort of pushing against kind of traditional narrative chronological understandings only through that backwards lens, that sort of inverse view of the story can we really grasp at what's really going on. That is sort of Ivory Tower, honestly.
0: Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> but, but it, it is very postmodern, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, I mean, there's so many ways that you can interpret it and interpret different parts of this play. We're we're running down to the end of our time here. So sadly, as we said at the beginning, we were not going to be able to talk about all the things that this play can offer us to talk about. Fortunately, we don't have to stop talking about it. We'd love to talk to it with uh, talk about it with all of you out there in podcast land. You can find us on Facebook instagram or twitter at the username at Noscript podcast we also have a gmail no podcast at gmail.com if you have been in this play seen this play want to add your own cultural perspective or just your 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 own thoughts on the play to the conversation we would love to be talking about this play with you find us on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking about venus with you
1: absolutely this is it folks we have reached the end of another season it's been a great season lots of really different scripts to talk about and this conversation was no exception we will be taking a some time off a little bit vague at this point we'll be back sometime in early 2022 as the winter goes on hope you all have a good break we certainly will in the meantime please send folks our way discover our old episodes yourself We are on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, all of those places. You can also find us on Facebook, like us there. And the links to the new episodes are posted there every week as well. So you can connect with us there. We will see you in some amount of time here, not too long, as we come back for season eight.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll see you in 2022. And until then,
1: I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.